You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. And we want to thank McAllister Machinery, who just re-upped for another year to be a sponsor of the podcast. So thank you very much. Our guest today on the Leaders and Legends podcast is someone whom I consider the world's leading authority on someone I believe to be incredibly underrated up until the last few years, and that is Ulysses S. Grant. Our guest is Brooks Simpson, who is the Arizona State University Foundation Professor of History at Arizona State University. He received his PhD at Wisconsin-Madison, which is, I guess we can ask Dr. Simpson, but probably the best history college university in the country. He has written extensively on Ulysses S. Grant in the Civil War period. He's given several presentations. He's consulted on documentaries, and if you ask people, and I have a few who are involved in the Civil War from a scholarship perspective, uh, the opinion of Professor Simpson could not be any higher. Dr. Simpson, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank you for having me, Robert. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I wrote down 924 questions to ask you, and we'll see how many we can get through. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, to me, is the most compelling figure of the war, even more than Lincoln, to me, because Lincoln was uh, successful to a certain degree before the war, and whereas Grant was uh, in the years before the war an, an abject failure, or certainly something who had not fulfilled, someone who had not fulfilled his promise. But there's a couple other things I want to talk about as well. Uh, first, uh, let, let's talk about you. I have some spies, and uh, my understanding is you are a Yankees fan. Uh, that is correct. You were born in New York City, is that right? Uh, one on Long Island, actually. Uh, Freeport, uh, New York, uh, in Nassau County. And um, you're also a hockey nut? Um, there are those right who claim that. That, that. There are those who claim that, yes. So did you ever paint your face like David Putty on Seinfeld? And uh, No, I, I, I do draw lines somewhere, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there are those who know me that I'm a passionate Islanders fan as well as the Yankees fan. So growing up in the 70s, I know we're roughly the same age, that was, uh, as William Tecumseh Sherman would say, that was high dudgeon, was it not, to be an uh, Islanders fan in the 70s? Uh, the 70s and the uh, four straight Stanley Cups in the 80s were uh, certainly a memorable time uh, to be uh, an Islanders fan. Uh, not such a memorable time to be a, a Rangers fan, for example. And in fact, the uh, 
Islanders uh, had their uh, farm club in uh, Indianapolis during that time, the Indianapolis Checkers. Checkers, that's exactly right. That's right. Who was your favorite Islander? Mike Bossy? Brian Trache. Uh, I played center uh, when I uh, did play hockey, and uh, uh, Trache was uh, as skilled defensively as he was offensively, uh, could hit people, uh, could shoot the puck, uh, and could do all the big things and the little things necessary for a team to win. There is a local sports columnist. His name's Bob Kravitz, and who's mm-hmm. actually agreed to come on the podcast. He's recovering from heart surgery. We wish him well. And he and I had lunch. Uh, it's been quite a while now. And I said, let's just do best and worst or whatever off the record and chat. And we did. And I said, most underrated sports movie. And without missing a beat, he said, Slapshot. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Slapshot is still a fairly uh, memorable movie. Uh, it's framed a lot of popular uh, understands about hockey. Um, the model for Slapshot, to some extent, was based upon a uh, hockey player who played for the Long Island Ducks and who I uh, saw uh, during his minor league days of the uh, late 1960s, uh, John Brophy. Uh, so, uh, not only have I, you know, seen major league hockey at the national hockey league level, but, uh, swap shot certainly uh, captures some of the flavor of, uh, minor league hockey. My family is from half of my family is from Camden. So I grew up a Philadelphia Flyers fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of the, or did you see the HBO special on the broad street bullies? I, I did. And I did, you know, I, I think that, uh, the Flyers are part of an evolution in the National Hockey League in the 1970s uh, from the Boston Bruins, uh, uh, emphasizing a more physical kind of play. Uh, and then in turn, uh, other teams learned how to incorporate that style of play while still uh, uh, doing other things as well. And, that, and that's one thing I, I, I think that the Islanders, who used to play the Flyers a great deal and who mm-hmm. won their first Stanley Cup at the uh, Flyers' expense, you um, learned that one of the things they had to do to be successful in the playoffs was to be um, uh, as uh, physically compelling as they were in terms of uh, their skill set. We mentioned the Yankees uh, before. Uh, do you have a first or earliest New York Yankees memory? Uh, yeah, actually, the first game I um, went to at Yankee Stadium, and this would be the Yankee Stadium prior to the 1973 uh, uh, season. I went in 1969 when uh, most New Yorkers would have concentrated on the New York Mets. Uh, uh, but I went uh, to a game between the Yankees and what were then called the California Angels. Um, and I remember uh, two Yankee rookies made their debut in that game, and one of them, a catcher named Johnny Ellis, uh, hit an inside-the-park home run. Uh, um, so those were the uh, post-Mickey Mantle uh, Yankees, a uh, Yankee team that uh, uh, was not as successful as their predecessors or their successors. But nevertheless, uh, those were the Yankees uh, uh, that I knew as a kid, uh, featuring uh, Bobby Mercer and a very young Thurman Munson. Did the love of baseball and hockey and history kind of all germinate at the same time? I mean, living in New York City, the history that's within just an hour's drive 
of New York City is fascinating. Did it was it kind of a a, a growth spurt in all three things and other things at the same time? Well, I, I, I think actually the history came before the sports. I think the sports came in the late 1960s. But um, uh, my father's mother, my grandmother, uh, uh, was a descendant of uh, two Civil War uh, veterans uh, and uh, took a great deal of interest in my interest in history uh, and did a lot to cultivate it, uh, took me to Grant's tomb uh, as a kid and also took me several times to Sagamore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt's house out in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Uh, she had met Roosevelt when he had been in South America. And so she mm. had this rather vivid description of encountering him with the teeth all over the place and <laughs> the energetic way and talking about being delighted to meet her and all, all the like. And so uh, uh, she had some stories to tell um, and both she and my parents did a lot to, to foster uh, uh, that interest coming on the heels of the uh, Civil War centennial yeah. uh, between 1961 and 1965. So you know, the New York World's Fair in 1964-65 uh, featured an exhibit from the state of Illinois, and that's where Walt Disney had his animatronic Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and so I would always drag my father in to see that again and again and again. And now I've uh, uh, dragged my children into the version that's at uh, Disneyland in California. Uh, they have no idea why I'm interested in it. I really don't care. <laughs> you're at Arizona. There's a couple other questions I want to ask you before we move on. But sure. you're, you're at Arizona State. Um, we could be parochial and assume that there just isn't like – the Arizona territory was not a hotbed of civil war activity, right. mm -hmm. but do you find that it's, it's immensely popular out there? History in um, general and civil war specifically. I think there's always been an interest in the American civil war. Um, not as intense uh, in Arizona as for example, when I went to school uh, in Virginia uh, or worked in Tennessee or South Carolina, but it, but it's still there. I think, um, uh, far more people are interested in the American Civil War than a lot of other aspects of American history. Uh, they, um, their understanding and the depth of their interest may vary, but it, it's still there. Um, it, it's um, something I would see as much more of an American thing in many ways than just simply a part of the uh, southeast part of the country. I just think people in the southeast of the country, white southerners in particular, have a a little more intensity about the American Civil War because for them it's uh, highly personal. Going back to uh, one question I want to ask you about Long Island. Uh, I just went to New York City for the very first time. I'm 52 years old and uh, last Christmas I took my kids and tried to get into Grant's tomb, went there on a Sunday. It was closed. Mm -hmm. uh, we went on a Sunday because we went to Monk's uh, from the restaurant from Seinfeld to celebrate Festivus mm -hmm. and right. um, tried to do that too for it didn't work. So I, I really want to go back to New York City just to visit Grant's tomb. But New York in that environs has such terrific revolutionary war history. Was that something that you enjoyed as a kid or that you enjoy reading about as a scholar? Well, I was aware of it. Um, I think where I, I became more intensely introduced to uh, the area's histories and uh, 
in junior high school in uh, seventh grade, I wrote a paper about uh, John Lindsay's mayoral campaign in 1969's re-election campaign as an independent candidate. And uh, uh, my explanation, which I've now seen echoed in actual studies of the campaign, is one of the things that helped Lindsay a great deal was the uh, strength of the New York Mets that year, because uh, mm -hmm. with all the expanded playoffs, the league championship series, uh, division championships, et cetera. John Lindsay got to be in a lot of champagne-soaked uh, locker rooms. Um, <laughs> the following year, um, uh, they were very fond of classroom simulations. And uh, one of the simulations they did was of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, and I, I happened to be Alexander Hamilton uh, for that. Uh, and... Um, and so long before there was Win Manuel Miranda, I was playing Alexander Hamilton. Uh, I wasn't singing, however, um, but I got very interested in Hamilton at that time. And so that I think was my entry, not only the Revolutionary War uh, period, but also the founding period as a whole. Much has been written, especially because of, of the play, but I read articles from time to time. I'm a huge, huge fan of that time period. Actually just finished, uh, a uh, gentleman named, I think, Edward Larson's book mm -hmm. uh, about uh, Franklin and Washington. And if you're listening to this one, uh, Mr. Larson, you will be getting an email from me asking you to please come on my podcast. He also wrote a terrific book about the 18, um, 1800 election. I think it's called Magnificent Catastrophe, mm -hmm. election between Adams and Jefferson. But as a historian, as someone who, who studied this country from the from the beginning, is it a fair or accurate statement or both to say we are living in Hamilton's America and not Jefferson's America? I think we like the rhetoric of Thomas Jefferson. Um, we like to believe that we are more Jeffersonian than Hamiltonian, but in many of the ways that we behave, we're much more Hamiltonian uh, than Jeffersonian. Um, that, uh, I would argue that uh, Hamilton would be much more comfortable uh, with the United States as it is today than would uh, Thomas Jefferson, although Hamilton, I think, would also have his reservations about uh, several aspects of uh, uh, the current situation. Mm -hmm. But the, the Hamilton, the historical Hamilton and the Hamilton and the musical are uh, significantly different people, let's just put it that way. Um, and um, uh, so it's interesting to see how Americans have been reintroduced to Hamilton, uh, but at the same time, uh, that reintroduction, if it just stops there, I think would leave somebody with a fairly misleading uh, understanding of who Hamilton was, what he did, and, and frankly, what his weaknesses were. We're going to get into some quotes that I've that I've pulled and have known for a long time and I want to ask you about get your reaction to but speaking of Hamilton one of my favorite quotes by someone great about someone great is when asked about Hamilton's brain power Thomas Jefferson replied he is a host unto himself yeah he was very intelligent man but he also had some um Achilles heels um uh, in his life that I think uh, limited his effectiveness in certain ways. Uh, he was fortunate that he had 
uh, gained a uh, working relationship with George Washington. Um, and I think to, to some degree, um, the Jeffersonians, once Hamilton was no longer on the scene, were more willing to accept some of Hamilton's measures uh, now that their mastermind was no longer present to do what they feared he might do with such opportunities. Was there a particular author you cottoned to in your early years, maybe high school, college, where you're like, I really, really enjoy reading books by, you know, this person or that person. Uh, personally, for me, even though my graduate degree is in uh, medieval history, 14th century England, I found uh, books by Bruce Catton to be, who is a famed Civil War historian, to be particularly readable. Did you find some of those books as a kid? And how important is it to you or for for the Civil War historians overall cause to have books that are just fun and readable? Well, first of all, my choice like yours uh, was Bruce Catton, that my parents loaded me up with the American heritage history of the Civil War and Catton wrote the text of that a lavishly illustrated book. Um, the, uh, the final two volumes of the Grant Trilogy, taking him through Appomattox. Um, I, I had those uh, as a child, as well as the uh, centennial history of the American Civil War and, and several other Catton's writings. So uh, my introduction uh, to the Civil War came primarily uh, through Bruce Catton. I uh, didn't uh, uh, read much of some of the other uh, more popular authors until later on, a little Douglas Southall Freeman here and, and um, Shelby Foote there, but none of them quite captured me the way that uh, Catton did. Um, I, I think there there's some really interesting issues of, and, and topics to talk about when it talks about, uh, we talk about writing history and, and for whom we're writing it and, and why we're writing, what's our purpose. Uh, and I think there are some books that uh, are building blocks for, for scholars. Um, uh, there are other books that are uh, tremendous um, acts of synthesis that bring a lot of scholarly findings to a larger audience. Um, I think it is challenging uh, to write for both audiences uh, because of the requirements of each audience. Um, and that uh, uh, there, some scholars actually are not altogether comfortable with their peers who um, enjoy a larger audience. Um, and uh, on the other hand, um, those people who are professional historians, degree holding historians, mostly working in, in higher education, uh, they, they understand that uh, if their uh, scholarly stamp is really nothing more than synthesis, then they will come under criticism from their professional peers for not advancing the understanding field. So I think that's a very difficult tightrope to walk. And there are people I think write extremely good history and thoughtful history who do not hold advanced degrees um, in uh, Yeah, the Longstreet's, uh, the biographer Jeffrey Wirt, isn't he a high school history teacher or was I loved his book yes. on Longstreet I read it it's probably been 20 25 years ago when it first came out but that's the one thing about Civil War history it's a lot of the books that I read about the medieval period are almost always by scholars not 
not all, but the vast, right. vast majority. But some of the most terrific books I've read about the Civil War and the Civil War period, and quite frankly, the Revolutionary War period, are written by people who just quite candidly really, really know what they're talking about. That's right. I, I think there are there are some advantages, I would argue, to a, a doctoral program, um, largely in your ability to make uh, comparisons to other places and other times, because you're exposed to a lot more literature, frankly. Um, and I think that in some cases, uh, you uh, are acquainted with better research methods, more thorough research methods, simply because you have a lot of instruction and supervision there. But I don't, I wouldn't draw a line necessarily in the sand between those who have advanced degrees and those who don't in terms of their ability to reach an audience uh, and tell a, a story well um, and engaging fashion, but nevertheless have important things to say and, and new insights. So I think that that's, um, and, and people from either side who try to cast stones at the other side, I think, are, are misbegotten in that sense. So uh, it's not matter to me. I mean, Catton himself, for example, you could see that uh, um, he was not a professionally uh, trained historian, but you could see over time in his writings, especially in the two volumes on Grant, uh, more interest in detailed annotation uh, than he had before. Uh, so you could see even he wanted to make sure that uh, his work could pass uh, muster in uh, professional circles. So I think Ken, uh, Ken know, Burns, Ken Burns's documentary was. I think the, even the historians wrote a kind of rebuttal, but they didn't. The historians come together and say, "Hey, we loved Burns's documentary, The Civil War, that was very popular 25 or so years ago." But here are some errors. I mean, you can, to your point, you can have both. Well, you can have errors, and, and, and first of all, remember, Ken Burns had a group of historians advising him, and that, that's a different, right. the animal of, of, of the uh, history on screen, whether it's Ken Burns or the more recent uh, Grant documentary on uh, history, uh, the, the formerly the History Channel, uh, and the like, that, that's a, a different animal altogether, because there are going to be issues of compression of selection uh, if you actually look at a script for an hour show, you realize how little uh, there is uh, in terms of space and time to get information across. Uh, and, uh, you know, the problem always is when any, any movie comes out, the Spielberg-Lincoln movie in 2012, for example, right. there are going to be compromises made. And the, the debate is always between those people who get history solely or primarily through such visual um, uh, presentations going all the way back to Birth of a Nation and, and Gone with the Wind, or if they see that as an opportunity, then look at other things. Um, and, and so I, I, I think there's always going to be a tension there. Uh, there were mistakes, some big, some small, uh, in the in the Burns uh, documentary, but there were also just uh, differences of opinion on what sure. should be emphasized. Um, Burns himself has said uh, recently uh, in an interview with uh, Chris Cuomo that uh, he would do it differently now than he would have in, when he was putting it together in the late 1980s. You, you mentioned Gone with the Wind, and uh, this uh, we try not to date these podcasts, although I frequently do. It's being recorded on July 1st, which is uh, not only the first day of the Battle of the Somme, mm -hmm. in which 60,000 British were... Um, 
killed, uh, injured, or missing in a single day. It's also the anniversary of the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, which is 1863. The Psalm is 1916. But we would be remiss because we love her in so many roles. Today is also the 104th birthday of Olivia de Havilland. Mm-hmm. Melanie and Gone with the Wind. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Professor Brooks Simpson, the world's leading, in my view, grant scholar, a scholar of Ulysses S. Grant, and he's been very generous with his time, and we're going to delve right into the general and the recent documentary. Uh, One of my most favorite anecdotes or facts about Grant. And um, I used to give, I used to travel the Midwest and give a speech to Civil War round, to Civil War round tables about how the relationship between Lincoln and Grant won the war. That was my thesis Mm -hmm. and traveled around actually quite a bit and enjoyed it and would love to do it again sometime. So I'm going to make some assertions and and maybe ask some questions, and Professor Simpson's going to go, Vane, you're smart, or he's going to go, Vane, you don't know anything about Ulysses S. Grant or the Civil War, and I promise to take either one of those judgments with aplomb and uh, grace. In December 1857, Ulysses S. Grant was so poor, he had to pawn his gold watch for $22 so he could buy Christmas presents for his family. Less than seven years later, he would be the first merit lieutenant general since George Washington. How did that happen? Well, part of it is uh, opportunity. Some would call that luck. Um, But much has to do with what you do with those opportunities. Other people had opportunities too and did not uh, uh, do quite so well. Um, I think that Grant... Uh, had a lot of common sense, uh, a fundamental understanding of how to get things done. Um, And when given the opportunity, uh, was more focused in getting those things done than how one might appear when doing them or um, in which great uh, military geniuses one was uh, trying to emulate uh, and the like. But I mean, part of that is simply being in the right place at the right time uh, at the beginning. Uh, Moving to Galena, Illinois in 1860, for example, meant that uh, he was in uh, firmly uh, northern territory at the outbreak of the conflict. Um, Being in uh, Galena in the northwest corner of the state meant that he was already acquainted with the uh, district's congressman, Elihu Washburn, uh, who, uh, when looking around to give someone a commission to that for whom he could take credit, uh, settled upon this uh, Mexican War veteran. Um, those cannot be uh, attributed to uh, Grant's genius, but uh, to opportunities. But again, other people have opportunities and they don't do well. Um, And what Grant seemed to do when he got opportunities is 
uh, make the most of them uh, early on. Uh, and, and certainly uh, by 1862, he had, I would argue, an up and down year. Um, uh, great victories at uh, Forts Henry and Donaldson, um, escaping by the uh, skin of his teeth at uh, Shiloh. Uh, and then trying to struggle forward during the remainder of the year with some people who were very hostile towards his advancement. Some of those people had Lincoln's ear. Um, and it's not until 1863 uh, with the Vicksburg campaign, uh, the culmination of which the anniversary comes in several days as well, uh, that uh, Grant really established himself among the front rank of uh, Union military leadership and again, that's in part because of temperament, uh, problem solving, uh, and a, a rather straightforward understanding of the task before him. Uh, I, I think it's useful when we uh, remember, uh, you know, why, to what can we attribute this? Grant's favorite subject at West Point was mathematics. And mathematics is basically solving problems. Um, and Grant was very good at that. And in fact, uh, there's at least one proof that he offered that, that stood for quite some time in the academy's annals. I mean, he was known for his skill in math. He was known for his horsemanship. Um, but that ability to solve problems, to reduce problems to their, their essentials, and then to figure out how to address those problems um, made him um, distinctive among his peers who often couldn't even frame uh, the, the problem, the task before them, let alone come up with a viable solution. How much did Grant's numerable failures help him ultimately succeed? Well, I would argue that one of the things that where failure helps you to succeed later on is that you have failed. Um, and therefore you are accustomed to it and you know you can rebound from it uh, and uh, try again. Uh, let's do it this way. Uh, think of the uh, student who goes to college and the first semester gets a 4.0 perfect GPA. And I've known students like this. And immediately the pressure on them is to maintain that average at all costs. Uh, and, and they've not, know, you know, if they get a B plus, they're shattered. I've seen people shattered by really good performances that weren't their best, but not certainly in life and death situations, but they go, I didn't do as well as I could. I failed. And, uh, and you can see them taking time to recover from that. Uh, Grant had failed. Um, you know, what, you know, Grant at child could say, you know, once this battle is over, what's the worst that can happen to me? I'll return to where I was before the war. Um, but not, there's not a lot of people expecting a lot of me. Um, and there are a lot of people who doubted me, including in Grant's case, his own father. Uh, there were very few people who were firm Grant supporters, one of them being his wife, Julia. Um, but uh, other people had to, had to learn to trust him, including Lincoln himself. Um, and uh, I, I think that failure uh, often prepares you for future success. I mean, I think uh, and how to deal with things. The sports comparison, by the way, would be the New York Islanders, who lost several playoff rounds in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 1970 to Toronto in 1979 to the Rangers. And those defeats uh, helped 
established the foundation for the, the run of Stanley Cups in the 1980s that you, it's common, especially made hockey, you have to lose sometimes before you win because losing helps you learn how to win. And I would argue that Grant is sort of evolving over uh, this time. He's learning. Uh, sometimes he has to be taught the same lesson several times. But again, I think when you have failed, um, as opposed to being, let's say, George McClellan, number two in your class, uh, you know how to deal with it. You know you'll survive it in a way that, uh, with, with a certain resilience, the way that someone has never been tested that way uh, uh, responds to the prospect of failure. Let's talk, before we get into more stuff about Grant, let's, if it's okay with you, talk for just a few minutes about the recent documentary called Grant on History, which used to be the History Channel. It was very popular uh, by, uh, I think, every measure, but uh, it received some pointed criticism. Do you think it's just, I want to ask more specific questions, but I guess to me, the most satisfying part of the portrayal of, of the most satisfying part of the documentary was the portrayal of General Henry Halleck as an absolute jerk. I actually cheered that they presented him that way. Am I, am I wrong to be buoyant about Halleck who treated Grant like dirt until Grant got three stars? Um, I think, I think it was one of the funnier parts of the documentary, whether intentionally or not. Um, that uh, how it came off as a blustering uh, fool uh, and uh, to the point that uh, you could not uh, come up with an empathetic understanding of how it <laughs> and in fact that's a challenge in any case um, but I, I do think on the other hand that there, there are other people that uh, could have been subjected to that sort of treatment uh, uh, John McLernan for example uh, who were spared um, in, in that sense. Uh, so I thought there was some comic relief to that. Uh, there are uh, people out there who are Halleck revisionists and Halleck defenders and the like, um, but uh, his treatment of Grant was uh, uh, questionable uh, during uh, their time together in the West. And, and Grant didn't always find him a pleasant person to deal with when it came to the Eastern Theater, either to take over overall command of the armies of the United States. Uh, but it wasn't, I think, until after the war when Grant's uh, staff came across correspondence uh, that showed exactly how treacherous uh, Halleck had been that uh, Grant uh, really soured on him uh, in uh, the, the way that we then saw portrayed in the documentary. One of my... Uh one of the, the little historical nuggets that, that I included in my uh, Civil War roundtable speech about Lincoln and Grant is the fact that Grant's father was taught, was a tanner, and he was taught the craft of tanning by John Brown's father. Mm -hmm. I found that to be a like, how could they not include that? I mean, I know it's not a, some giant theme, but it's such an important little piece of, I hate to say trivia, because it's more important than that. Is that the sort of thing where you're talking about where you can include everything, but, you know, wow, I wish you would have included that? Well, I, I, think, I think the problem with any documentary is you only got so much time. 
So you better decide what story or stories you're going to tell because you, you're not going to be comprehensive. You're not going to be definitive. Um, and, and I think one of the problems with the documentary, in fact, was not deciding which story to tell or which themes to concentrate on. Um, uh, and I, I also think the documentary tended to uh, bend over towards the wartime grant uh, and um, using uh, reenactors uh, uh, sometimes to excess at the expense of, of, of what I call some narrative unity uh, and, and, and thematic continuity. Uh, so it's not just that Grant's father uh, worked in Owen Brown's tannery and was very aware of John Brown as a young man, but that Grant had gone to a prep school in uh, Ripley, Ohio, right before he went to West Point. And the fellow who ran that prep school, for example, a guy named the Reverend John Rankin, actually also operated a station on the Underground Railroad. Uh, mm. So that Grant was in the area, of course, where Eliza uh, crosses the Ohio River uh, to escape to freedom and Uncle Tom's Cabin, that's that same area. Uh, so Grant was aware of these issues as a young man. Um, and he had to do a lot of thinking of them, uh, about them, even as he you know, goes to Missouri, falls in love with the daughter of a, a slaveholder. Uh, and indeed, during the 1850s, uh, works on uh, his father-in-law's plantation, works alongside slaves, owns a slave for a while, uh, uh, and yet neighbors say he's a lousy slaveholder because he pays uh, slaves way too much and he doesn't beat them, he doesn't whip them, he's not a disciplinarian. Um, but from the beginning, this the issue of slavery runs through Grant's life. It, it's, it's much a personal uh, challenge what to do about this because it, it enters his life in so many directions as it is a public issue. And, and I'm and I'm not going to try to spend a bunch of time trying to to punk out this documentary, which is is certainly if you're a Civil War fan or a Grant fan or a history fan, it's it's certainly worth watching. Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to see done, especially because I think they spent a little, you know, they they mentioned the surrender at Appomattox, even though they have Grant dressing a hell of a lot better than he did <laughs> at the actual ceremony, is Grant's personal role in basically saving. Robert E. Lee's hide after the Civil War. Please talk just a few minutes about that. They, they met for the surrender. Then I think they met the next day because that's where Grant sees, sees General Longstreet, who he's known for years, and they were close friends. And mm -hmm. then Lee, Lee visits Grant when Grant is uh, president. But in between then, the president who takes over after Lincoln's assassination, Andrew Johnson, wants to go after Lee. And you correct me if this history isn't correct. Johnson wants to go after Lee, and Grant saves him or protects him. Essentially, that's what happened, that, uh, that Andrew Johnson wanted to put Confederate leaders on trial for treason. And in fact, Jefferson Davis was in prison in Fortress Monroe, Virginia, for several years as they debated over how to handle his case. Uh, in uh, Lee's case, however, um, the argument was that the Grant um, surrendered terms only covered Lee so long as he was a prisoner of war. If you declared the war over, you couldn't have prisoners of war. You could try him for treason. And in fact, Lee had been indicted mm -hmm. for treason by a grand jury in Virginia, uh, as had several other Confederate leaders. 
And, and, and Johnson, whose big mantra upon entering office is that uh, treason uh, must be made odious and traitors must be punished, um, uh, wanted to go after Lee. And it was Grant who said, you can't do this. Uh, you've, uh, Lincoln approved these terms. In fact, J Johnson had approved those terms because those were essentially the same terms that Sherman ended up giving Joe Johnston in North Carolina at the end of April 1865. Um, and if you do this, um, I can't be held accountable for what's going to happen next because a lot of Confederates surrendered because they thought they weren't going to be prosecuted for treason. Uh, and when Johnson persists, Grant threatens to resign and take his case to the people. And in fact, it is Grant's, it, 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 it's not a question of law at this point. It's Grant saying, do you want to go one-on-one -on -one with me? And at this point, Ulysses S. Grant is the most popular man in the United States. Um, and, and Johnson backs off. So yes, uh, Grant uh, saved Lee's neck, certainly saved Lee the experience of treason trial um, in the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War. Um, I think what's interesting is the grant of 1865, um, although committed to the fruits of victory in terms of emancipation, was very interested in, in reconciling with white Southerners at the same time. Um, and in fact, I, I don't think that the uh, series did a very good job of understanding the balance that Grant's trying to walk, that part of the war is to reunite the country. And that means welcoming Southern whites back into the Union. But is the price going to be the betrayal of Black aspirations for freedom, uh, liberty, opportunity, equality, and the like? Uh, it's a little more complex than, than uh, uh, that, that, that rather short treatment has. It also is a little more complex as to why Grant chose to run for president. Um, a position that uh, he really didn't want. Um, I, I think we, we, you emphasized earlier Grant's uh, struggles in the 1850s economically. Well, by 1866, Ulysses S. Grant got four stars on his shoulder. The rank of general of the army is created for him. Um, he's getting things from all over the place uh, because at that time, let's say ethical boundaries weren't what they would be now. Uh, people in Boston, because Bostonians are who they are, they gave him a library. Uh, people from Philly, given who they are, they gave him a house. People mm -hmm. from New York, being who they are, they just gave him money. Um, uh, <laughs> so, and he was being treated as this great man in his own nice Washington house, etc. Um, and he'd have to give that up if he ran for president. There was no retirement program. There's no pension program for a president at the time. People forget that when Grant became president in 1869, he was the youngest man at that time ever to become president of the United States. Um, he'd secured his economic future, and now he's being asked to put all that at risk to enter politics. So there was a sense of personal sacrifice there. Those things, there are, so again, what story are you going to tell um, and what's the purpose of your documentary? Um, because you, you think, I think you have to accept you cannot do everything. And I think one of the challenges with that 
the recent documentary was it didn't always choose what it wanted to do very well and then didn't persist in that. Um, the, the one thing you did mention, which I, I think was sort of amusing, when, when people watch these things, there are a group of people who will point out that the, the rifles are wrong, the terrain is wrong, it's the wrong time <laughs> of the day. And by the way, most of these criticisms were correct, uh, but a lot of the audience isn't looking for that. Uh, but Grant was always uniformed incorrectly. And in fact, the Grant uniform of 1861 is the same as the one in 1865, by the way, except for the number of stars on his shoulder straps. And there's no picture of Grant that shows him wearing his uniform coat in the way that the, um, the series had. And as you said, he comes somewhat overdressed to athletics with all these brass buttons and the like, and so they rather plain private uh, tunic. Uh, that he wore. He only had his, his uh, shoulder straps on, and they, they said he looked like a fly on a shoulder of beef when he walked into uh, <laughs> Wilmer McLean's parlor um, with all the mud and red clay of the Virginia countryside splattered all over him. So, and his his idol that, was his idol was um, Zachary Taylor, who was a, dressed right. like a bum, and with all due respect, President Taylor and. Uh, Robert E. Lee's idol was uh, Winfield Scott, or excuse Winfield Scott, Old who, of feathers. yeah, who was a, a brevet lieutenant general, but it was always dressed like he was going to the prom, and so you could that that should have been brought out in in the visual that is that is that was presented is the contrast between the two is not only not education because they both went to West Point, but but there were so many contrasts in height and bearing and in continence and attitude, but but they were almost personified by the fact that Lee dresses really well because he thinks that he's going to be Grant's prisoner. That's and, right. And, uh, you know, and that's, uh, you know, when, when Grant, uh, Lee's headquarters baggage is lost during the retreat, they basically have to make a, a decision when they're trying to get away. Okay, what are you going to get? So Lee decides to pick out one of his best uniforms and one of his best swords. And that's why he looks great because everything else has been lost or sacrificed, uh, Grant. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it can get very humid in Virginia in the summer and there it is spring and he had these special duds uh, uh, cut out for him in part so he could relax at headquarters and in part because he didn't make such a, a noticeable target for a sharpshooter. <laughs> um, Let me ask I, you one more question about the, the documentary because, and then we'll move on. Sure. The most, let me, let me make a declaratory statement and you correct me. To me, the best love story of the civil war is Ulysses Grant and his wife, Julia. He loved her so much. She was dedicated and devoted to him that really doesn't come out in the documentary. Again, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but like, if you want to understand Ulysses S. Grant, you have to understand how much his wife and family meant to him. I, I think that, you know, people notice that uh, while Julia Dent was present in the first of the three episodes that aired, uh, that uh, uh, Julia disappeared during the second and most of the third episode. Um, and yet she was always... Uh, his stalwart supporter, um, he made efforts to take uh, his wife along when he could, uh, not on campaign, but when things settled down for a while, 
Uh, he'd call on Julia to get to the front. Documentary even missed the fact that Grant often was accompanied by his son, Fred, mm -hmm. uh, who was born in 1850. In fact, Fred was hit by a spent ball during the Vicksburg campaign. Um, and if you go to the Illinois Monument today in Vicksburg, uh, which uh, is located pretty near the surrender site where Grant and John C. Pemberton met on July 3rd, 1863. Fred Grant's name is listed as one of the Illinoisans who fought <laughs> in, in the Vicksburg campaign. Grant was an intensely uh, devoted family man. Um, uh, and the love story I have with Julia uh, is one of the great stories of American history, their, their mutual devotion. And uh, Grant's being a very indulgent father in contrast to how his own father treated him. Right. Uh, had consequences for Grant's life uh, down to his uh, final year. Uh, some of them positive, some of them negative. But it was a great love story. It, it's, it's, missing, it's missing there. Uh, again, it's just a question of what story do you want to tell or stories, what two or three themes do you want to pursue? Uh, even the Burns documentary that you mentioned before, one of the emphases was to talk about the cost of battle. And uh, you will see after the coverage of every battle, there'll be rather somber tones playing and some will reflect upon what a battlefield looks like afterwards uh, uh, and, and uh, what's the cost of war. Uh, I think you have to choose your themes in that sense because you only have so much time and if you view your documentary as a way to spark interest rather than a way to have the word on the person, I think you do better. That's certainly what Burns's documentary did. It sparked interest. It sparked discussion. Right. Um, and I think that, that that's something that future documentary makers have to think about. What's, what's your point? Uh, it, it, movie makers do this all the time. Steven Spielberg's Lincoln takes Team of Rivals and condenses it to one episode in Lincoln's life. That's not even a featured part of Doris Kearns Goodwin's narrative. Right. I remember being a kid and watching the Beverly Hillbillies mm -hmm. and remembering the episode where Granny's going to refight the Civil War, and here right. comes General Grant on his horse riding up to the mansion, and he looks like he's had about 20 gin and tonics. Mm -hmm. the, the notion and the charge of Grant being a drunk mm -hmm. and Julia's role in helping to arrest his love of drink has that been overplayed or have the historians gotten it right? I think um, what's interesting about this is first of all, historians struggle with whether Grant was an alcoholic or not. Now, if you actually look at literature about alcohol addiction and alcohol abuse, you'll find that that literature is so varied that it's difficult to come up with a definition with which everyone could agree. Um, it's clear in my mind that Grant had a relationship with alcohol. It is clear in my mind that um, um, his reaction to it was uncertain and unpredictable, as he himself would admit uh, that sometimes 
he could drink for a while and there'd be no effect. He, other times, uh, one or two glasses and he was in trouble. Because um, he's a little guy. I mean, I hate to put it that way. But... He's a little guy during the American Civil War. He is 135 pounds. So, he, you know, a lot. And But he doesn't res necessarily respond in predictable ways. But it wasn't that he drank. It's that he became, uh, that he, the impact, the effects of alcohol showed on him very, very quickly. Other generals drank. Joseph Hooker drank a lot. Yep. But it's really a question <laughs> of can you hold your liquor? Um, and then there's a question of, okay, when did Grant drink and was it really important? Um, look, when you are a general in command of 40, 50,000 men, whenever you're incapacitated, that's a bad thing. Okay, somebody say he waited until the required periods of the war suggests that there was some planning to this and, and actually the record doesn't support that. Um, the drinking and its impact was exaggerated. If Grant was a helpless and hapless alcoholic, then he could never have controlled his appetite. Sometimes Julia is there, sometimes Julia is not. But the, 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 the notion that Julia acted to control his drinking, there's one challenge to that, which is as president, the Grant White House had a very impressive wine cellar. <laughs> um, and and uh, in fact, it was left to Lemonade Lucy, Rutherford B. Hayes' right. to try to clean that out. If Julia Grant was worried about her husband's uh, propensity for alcohol, um, you, you'd be hard pressed to uh, explain why the uh, Grant, uh, the White House wine cellar was so well stocked during the Grant administration. There are people who said that what happened afterwards is that he got larger, he had middle-aged spread, he put on some weight, he had better cooking, and he went from bad whiskey to much more refined drinks. And so we, the, the stories of Grant as a, as a drunk uh, start to diminish in 1865. We really don't have many um, after 1868, and, and, and no one makes a big deal about them. Anymore. That's a great point. That's exactly right. I'm sitting here thinking about, I don't ever remember him being charged uh, as being a drunk while president. It was all while he was in the United States Army before the Civil War and then during the combat. I never thought of it that way. That's right. Um, and there were other things going on, Grant. Uh, he suffered migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And in the 19th century, the notion was if you had a headache, you should take a drink to feel better. That's, in fact, exactly the wrong thing to do when you have a migraine headache. Um, and there are some times in which we can look at incidents where Grant's reported to be drunk, and we'll find other reports at the same time saying that he had a migraine headache, he was under the weather, and people actually pushed alcohol on him to try to say, hey, look, you'll feel better if you have a drink or two. Um, he has a headache, you remember. Yeah, yeah, the it, that's right. Night I'm sorry, I interrupted you. That's right. And and someone actually offers him a drink and says, you know, that's not really going to help at this point in time. So, so don't do yeah, that. In his, in his memoirs, he say, I, awoke, I think he says, I awoke with a terrific headache. And then as soon as he got Lee's note that he was ready to surrender, his headache went away. And, and those migraines, those tension headaches, that, that Grant internalized a lot of his stress. And that's what we see as a calm person is, I think, someone trying to restrain himself. Um, 
So we've heard the stories that the wilderness campaign, the opening of his confrontation with Robert E. Lee in 1864. Uh, there are images of Grant supposedly whittling away at a piece of wood, uh, smoking two dozen cigars. And people are saying, see how calm he is? He's just smoking and whittling. Well, in fact, when he was whittling, he chopped up his cotton gloves. He'd gotten all dressed for the Armed Potomac, but by the end of the second day, he was back to where he used to be, and the sword was away, and the <laughs> uniform wasn't quite what it was. But he was nervous. He's working off nervous energy, because he's never commanded that army before. He has no idea how they're going to act. And for one of the few times that we have, Grant actually loses his cool during a battle, uh, when the Confederates launch an attack on uh, the evening of May 6th and make some progress, people run to headquarters and say, here it is. Lee's going to do it to us. He's done this before. I know his methods. And Grant stands up and he says, you know, I'm sick and tired of this. I've heard enough about Bobby Lee. Some of you think he's going to turn a double somersault and land in our flanks and our rear at the same time. Go back and think about what you're going to do to him, not what he's going to do to us. That's a man who explodes. He's not worried about Lee. He's worried about the Army of the Potomac. Um, and whether it's like getting a new sports car that you don't understand how to operate yet. Um, and uh, he, he, it's, a, it's somewhat of a learning curve for him. It's one of the reasons he did not want to come east before. He said, I know my generals in the west. I don't know them in the east. I don't know how this is going to work. He gets tense. He gets nervous. The migraine headaches are part of that. The tension headaches are a part of that. But it's all inside. And, and so we don't have the sort of pyrotechnics that we would have from a William T. Sherman, for example, or even a George Meade exploding at people and telling them off. Grant kept that inside by and large or sought other relief, whether it was cigars or riding horses or something else. Is Grant's reassessment and revival as a commander coming at the expense of Robert E. Lee, or can their respective military reputations stand together? I think their reputations can stand together. But, uh, but it is true that we have had a more critical assessment of Lee's uh, generalship that is accompanied uh, uh of Grant's generalship. Although one could argue that that's almost a century old. The first historian to really argue this was a British historian named J.F.C. Pulver. Yeah, the, wrote, yeah, wrote, he and, uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so he, he, he basically argued that Grant was a superior general to Lee, that Lee was a traditional general and Grant was a modern general, and that, that dichotomy uh, uh, persists in a lot of popular minds. Grant built his reputation not against Robert E. Lee, but against the likes of Albert Sidney Johnston and uh, Braxton Bragg and John C. Pemberton. Robert E. Lee built his reputation based upon George McClellan, John Pope, Ambrose Burnside, and Joseph Hooker. Um, uh, when uh, the Army of the Potomac finally got a competent, steady, unimaginative commander, George Meade, and Lee found himself in some difficulty. Uh, and so you have both generals built their reputation by going up against the other side's B team. 
but Albert Sidney Johnston was thought as the beau ideal of of generals. I mean, he was that's he, right. And Joseph E. Johnston, I think Grant even said that Joseph E. Johnston was the rebels' best commander, even after he had faced Lee. Fair. And, or, and of course, then Lee also made some comment reportedly that McClellan was the best commander. Yeah. He, he faced, but I think if I was Robert E. Lee, I would always want to face George McClellan. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and frankly, if I was Grant, I might want to face Joe Johnston because he liked to retreat. And, you know, the, the most interesting <laughs> campaign of the war may be when McClellan is slowly advancing and Johnston is slowly retreating and they never quite get together. Um, uh, you know, to me, McClellan, McClellan, I would rate as the worst general of the war based on the potential. He had the potential in the instrument to win the war years before, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And I always thought that one of the things that, that brought Lincoln and Grant together was Grant's personal treatment of Lincoln. Whereas McClellan sent him a telegram saying, you've done your best to sacrifice this army and, and called him the original guerrilla. And, you know, he famously, uh, McClellan famously uh, stood up Lincoln, I think, and Stanton after they'd waited for an hour or so at right. his place. Grant's like, hey, why don't you come down to City Point? Hey, why don't you come down to see the army? Why don't you come and hang out with us for a while? And that Lincoln's, Lincoln really liked that sense of being involved and having a general who didn't mind him around because he knew that Lincoln wasn't going to interfere. I, I, think, I think that Grant understood the political game and the way to get along with your boss in a way that George McClellan didn't. Um, I, I actually think that, you know, George McClellan's one of those guys who hadn't failed. And therefore, was petrified by failure. You could see him saying, I'm, we're going to fight this one big battle. The fate of the republic depends upon it. I can't lose. Well, if you wait until things are perfect, you don't get things done. Um, and that, I think, was what Mc, you know, McClellan felt the burdens um, and, and, uh, of command in a way that made it difficult for him to get things done. Whereas I think Grant understood that these were opportunities to get things done. But certainly, one of the keys there is for Grant to get along with Lincoln, which they do, uh, starting really, though, in 1863. But I'd argue before that, it's a much tenser relationship between the two men who don't meet each other until 1864. Um, but, that, but that Grant's smart enough not to argue with him in the way that uh, other generals might argue with him or become, um, you know, upset with him. I mean, uh, George Meade used to get upset with Lincoln a lot, and Lincoln would get upset with George Meade in, in turn, so even though they're not insulting each other. And remember, Lincoln insults McClellan, too. Um, the he, slows. He, the he, slows. You know, this is, this is, this is a darn Potomac. This is Joe McClellan's bodyguard, for example. <laughs> right. uh, what have your horses done that have made them tired? I mean, it... it it's a dysfunctional relationship between Lincoln and McClellan on both sides. Um, and it's a, it becomes a functional relationship and a supportive relationship between Grant and, and Lincoln on both sides. But again, it took a little while for Lincoln to warm up to Grant. He never quite got to the point, obviously, of removing him, but he had his doubts. They were understandable. They had reports of his drinking. He sent people out to check up on him. Um, 
he had generals who had his ear who criticized Grant, and he gave them a hearing. And it's really, in that sense, one of the reasons Vicksburg is such an important victory for the, the Union cause is because it puts Grant on the pedestal. He's now won the big one. And, and what's going to happen afterwards, no one quite knows. But he's not going to be off in a, 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 a sideshow for later on. He, he is now performed. Grant um, had delivered the goods in a way that other generals had promised but failed to do. Um, and, is Vicksburg uh, the most impressive? And I have another statement I'm going to make so you can, you can shoot that down. But may I ask a quick question? Is Vicksburg the most impressive military achievement of the war? Uh, probably, yeah. Uh, it's a combined arms operation, difficult terrain uh, against an enemy force, which, uh, if ably managed, would have outnumbered you uh, deep in uh, enemy territory with uh, logistical challenges uh, that really would have uh, uh, destroyed a lesser man and with increasing public skepticism about whether you can pull this off. Uh, and uh, Grant's under the gun. Uh, he knows that they, they don't do what they need to do. Uh, that's the end of his military career. So there's a lot going on there, and the stakes are high, and then the results are uh, uh, very significant for the progress of Union arms during the war. Okay, so uh, the, the wonderful and brilliant and generous and kind and all-around terrific Hoosier, uh, Peter Carmichael, who uh, came on this podcast and one of the very first ones we did last year. I made this statement to him and he laughed and he didn't, he didn't, uh, Peter's the head of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College and he and I had the same history advisor for undergraduate. We actually mm -hmm. would have been there. This, we would have been at IEPUI, Indiana University here at Indianapolis at the same time, had I not joined the Army right out mm -hmm. of high school. Um, so I made this statement to him, and, and I'll make it to you, and you, you push back or tell me, hey, I'm on to something. Shiloh is the most important battle of the war. If Shiloh had been lost, then all, or if not all, but certainly most of the seeds of the ultimate Confederate defeat and Union victory would not have been planted. Grant would have certainly have not survived it, at least as we know it. The friendship between Grant and Sherman, which was cemented at Shiloh, uh, would not have taken place, would not have had the opportunity to grow. Grant would not have gotten the subsequent opportunities. Uh, Shiloh also, in my view, planted in the minds of not just the people who were there, but others, that there's not going to be a negotiated settlement. The South is going to have to be conquered. The armies are going to have to be defeated. Uh, this fact may be wrong, but I remember reading it one time that more people were sh killed and wounded at Shiloh than in every single battle and every single conflict in the United States history up to that date, which was April, I think, 6th and 7th, 1862. Mm-hmm. Shiloh, to me, cements the relationship between Grant and Sherman, which helped win the war. There's a, a terrific book about it. I forget who wrote it. I don't know if it was uh, Charles Blake, Brayson Flood, but someone wrote a book about the partnership between them and how they won the war. 
It allowed the Union to stay on the offensive in the West, where a lot of people think the war was won. And there are other things I could say, but that's my thesis. If I had to choose one battle that, that was the genesis of the Confederate defeat, I would choose Shiloh. How, how wrong am I? Look, I think it's always going to be tough to talk about what are turning points and what's the most important battle. One could flip this and say that, you know, the most important uh, campaign during the war, and some people have said this, uh, are the seven days uh, going on in Virginia at the same time, because after the seven days, uh, the notion of a quick war um, uh, went away um, and uh, the road to escalation and emancipation is established at that time. Certainly in terms of Grant, Grant's career and, and Sherman's career, that's important. Um, but there are so many what ifs. Uh, I could talk to the, about, you know, gee, there but for the grace of God, uh, everything changes at Belmont, which is the previous year when Grant makes his escape onto a steamer. Um, he relaxes for a moment, then gets up and a moment later a bullet enters the steamer right where his head would have been. So there are all these almost moments. Um, you know, in terms of Shiloh, um, one thing that's important in terms of Shiloh is that uh, Charles F. Smith, a man who most people would not know of at all, is not there. Uh, he had been um, at West Point uh, on the instructional staff when Grant was there as a cadet. Grant looked up to him. Uh, Smith was the person he got advice from. He was his most seasoned division commander. Um, Smith is injured um, prior to Shiloh, uh, does not participate just at the time that Sherman takes the field under Grant in the West. Um, I think Grant would have leaned on Smith before he leaned on Sherman, uh, just because they knew each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's sort of interesting that Smith's absence and, and, and Sherman's arrival uh, uh, coincide in, in an interesting way. But certainly Shiloh is, uh, had shot, as it was, given how Shiloh did turn out, uh, it was a near disaster for Grant, even though the Union Army wins. Uh, uh, that there's talk of removing Grant, that Henry Halleck's skepticism about Grant seems to be confirmed. Um, uh, and and uh, now whether it, it means that there's an escalation, I think that's, I think Union forces really get the sense of that, not so much on, on the battlefield, but when they occupy Western Tennessee in the summer of 1862, when they find out that uh, Confederate civilians are a little more determined to win than they thought they might be. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the same time, they have to deal with escape slaves coming into their lines and forcing the issue of what's our status? What are you gonna do with us? Uh, uh, and if you, you, you uh, protect our freedom uh, that we've secured for ourselves by escaping, and then white Southerners gonna say, see, I told you it was a war against slavery. After all, they're gonna revolutionize our society. So I think that, that certainly in terms of the individuals, the generals, uh, Shiloh, is important that had the Confederates won, yeah, things are, are tremendously different. Um, uh, you can take, you can probably take Grant off the board. And I would argue that Grant off the board leaves Sherman without somebody who can sort of oversee uh, Sherman's development and deal with Sherman's rough spots. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you know, that's, 
that's a perfectly, you know, uh, understandable way to see that in terms of the, the, the triumph of Grant. But, you know, what if the Vicksburg campaign goes south? Uh, Grant and Sherman would uh, uh, suffer as well in that. So there are always these interesting what ifs. Um, uh, and that's, you know, one thing that has led to the churning out of so many books about the military history of the American Civil War. What if this happened? What if that happened? I mean, you know, today is the anniversary of one of the great what ifs of that time. What if uh, Richard Yule had attacked Cemetery Hill on the evening of July 1st? What if Jackson had been alive? I mean, right. it's, it's interesting on this, the 155th, uh, uh, not 155th, 157th anniversary of uh, Gettysburg. Uh, you know, people were saying in Gettysburg on, on July 1, you know, where's Jackson? Now, I gather today in Richmond, they're saying, where's Jackson? Because his monument's being removed from Monument Avenue today. Right. Uh, so um, there are so many turning points that one thing I think we can say is that those moments of contingency, as Jim McPherson likes to call them, suggest that Confederate defeat was not preordained. It wasn't inevitable. Um, Certainly and, politically, it was not inevitable. And, and, and that the Confederacy could have survived. Um, and it, it does, I think the emphasis that you place on Shiloh reminds us of the importance of individuals in shaping the outcome of history, that it is harder to imagine a Union victory in the American Civil War if you take Ulysses S. Grant off the board because yes. of the ripple effect of taking him off the board. Well, Lincoln constantly bespoke of four military objectives, among others, but these would say would be the main four. Free navigation of the Mississippi River for northern commerce, the liberation of the pro-unionist area of East Tennessee, the defeat of the Army of Northern Virginia, and the capture of Richmond. Grant gave the president all four. That's right, and, and accepted the surrender of three field armies in the process, which uh, is a record no American generals had. And Lincoln didn't like generals who wanted to play politics, and Grant didn't like politicians who wanted to be generals. And it's these sorts of things that, that I talk about in my speech where it's like it, they're thinking on so many, their language too, but they're thinking on so many things was in concert. Yeah, I do think that's true, but I also think what's what's interesting about that is Grant's understanding of where Lincoln was and what Lincoln had to do. Most Union generals complained that the politicians didn't understand the stresses of command. Uh, George Meade would be like that. George McClellan certainly said like that. They don't understand what I'm doing. Grant understood what Lincoln was going through. Um, and so whereas usually people emphasize Lincoln's role in the Grant-Lincoln relationship, I, I would emphasize Grant's role, and I'll, I'll give you the example. Uh, it, at the end of 1863, Elihu Washburn introduces into the House of Representatives the bill that will reestablish the rank of Lieutenant General. And he clearly wants Grant to have that position. And in fact, 
and a revision of the bill grant is explicitly named to that position at one point because there's some concern that Lincoln might actually elevate Halleck to that position of all things. Lincoln administration does not support the bill at first, doesn't say anything. In fact, Lincoln says, I think Grant should stay in the West. Uh, but there's continuing debate and discussion about this. And then Grant sends a letter to one of his division commanders, Frank Blair. And uh, Frank Blair is now in Congress. Um, uh, such a, the blurring of the lines of military and, and political uh, at this time. And he says, look, I, I don't like politics. I don't want to run for president. I've heard all this stuff. I, I don't want to do this at all. Um, I think being a politician, as he puts it, it's a, a most slavish life. Nothing could that, induce nothing could induce you know, me to seek the presidency. Know, is right, and and then 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 he's but the key part to this letter is do not show this letter to anyone unless it be the president himself. <laughs> Which to me is show this to Lincoln so he understands that I'm not interested in his job. Um, that that he knew what Lincoln had gone through with other generals, and he said, "Look, I you know I'm not going to be a threat to you." And, and it's interesting about that time Lincoln comes around and says, "Okay, yeah, let's have the bill, and I'll appoint Grant." And well, because um, because Grant's father is telling everyone that his son should be president. That's right. Well, Grant, and, yes, and and Lincoln describes it as the which I thought was typical Lincoln, the presidential grub. Once it starts and, gnawing on somebody, gnawing. it's hard to say no to. And, and so I think Grant understood Lincoln's situation, what Lincoln needed, um, which I think if you look at other Union generals, they either don't understand it or they're dismissive of it. And so Grant always understood, and this I do think sets him apart from most of his peers, if not all of them, the wider political dimensions of the war. Grant, I had read, was thought to be a Democrat because he voted for James Buchanan in 1856 over Republican uh, candidate John C. Fremont. Grant explained his vote by stating he, quote, voted for Buchanan because he didn't know him and against Fremont because he did. Yeah, Grant's political background, though, actually was a Whig in the 1840s and 1850s. Father was a big Whig, so to speak, uh, pun intended. Um, but uh, that uh, Grant was, if anything, pro-Whig, and his, one of his political heroes would have been Henry Clay. Mm. Um, uh, Lincoln's political hero. He comes, and, and then, and of course, both Taylor and Scott run on the Whig ticket for president. Um, uh, Grant, in fact, shows up to, to get some army paperwork done in 1852, but Washington's closed because of Henry Clay's funeral. Um, so... There's, you know, Grant, Grant's political um, identity, I would argue, does not become solidified until the Andrew Johnson's administration, where he then clearly becomes a Whig, um, and, excuse me, a Republican, um, uh, with, with Whiggish tendencies, much like Lincoln had been. Um, and because in part, you also saw many of the Democrats during the war in the North as uh, uh, threatening the Union cause, as being disloyal to the uh, fate of his own soldiers. So Grant becomes a Republican, and in many cases, really the first real Republican president since 
Lincoln's a transitional figure in that regard. But I don't think that partisan identity really solidifies until after uh, the war is over. One thing I don't want to get short shrift to, give short shrift to in the few moments we have remaining, is uh, Grant's sense of personality and how it manifested itself as president. Uh, Grant was, and I think I'm going to get this quote mostly right. He was described once he took over from the Army of the Potomac as commander, excuse me, of all the armies and marched with the Army of the Potomac. He was described Mm -hmm. as habitually wearing the expression of a man who was about, who had determined to run his head into a brick wall and was about to do it. Mm Grant also had a terrific sense of humor. My favorite uh, Grant-ism is they asked if he could whistle. Am I going to get this right? And he says, I know two tunes. One is Yankee Doodle and the other one isn't. Yeah, that's right. And that's why those who want a Grant the musical um, are going to be sadly (laughs) frustrated by the fact that the central character doesn't care for music. Uh, Wasn't much of a dancer either. But Grant as president facing Reconstruction, which I have to be candid, I've not studied Reconstruction, but I've I've ordered your book and there's a couple articles I have up. Actually, I have pulled up your article on the uh, Lieutenant General Bill that you Mm -hmm. have written. I didn't get it all finished before the podcast, but is Grant's task as president during Reconstruction equal to or more than arduous than his role as commander in chief of the United States armies in the civil war. I think it's one of the most difficult challenges an American president has faced upon assuming office. Um, In part because so much of reconstruction had already taken place uh, under the Johnson administration in rather flawed ways that left Grant with a mess. uh, that uh, the role of the federal government was going to be limited because of notions of federalism, um, uh, that there was far less commitment among Northern whites for Black equality than there had been for preserving the Union, that white Southerners were far more unified by the notion of white superiority than they were for Confederate independence. I think we have to understand the Confederacy was never an end to many white Southerners. It was a means to an end. And that end could still be met in large part in the post-war period. Um, So you have uh, dwindling public support, a very determined terrorist operation going on in the South by white supremacists uh, that uh, I think we've underappreciated. and limited tools uh, to deal with these things. Uh, For example, you know, this is the 150th anniversary of the creation of the Department of Justice. Well, that's created during the Grant administration in large part to deal with all the cases that they have to deal with, with reconstruction and with uh, violence against uh, African Americans and their white allies in the South. I think that the the best way to deal with this is that to relate this to something we talked about earlier. Um, we talked about turning points during the American Civil War in terms of battles. And, and so we have a lot of people saying, what if General so-and-so had done this? What if General so okay, this could have turned out differently? Uh, and, and so we have all that. Not a single historian has come up with an approach to reconstruction 
that reconciles the need for sectional reconciliation with justice for African Americans. Now we are, you know, we don't talk about a reconstruction sesquicentennial, but we just had the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 15th Amendment, saying you couldn't use race, color, or previous condition of servitude as a barrier to voting. Um, we're not talking about that uh, in the way that we talked about American Civil War battles and the like. Um, but historians are usually very good at second guessing the people that they study, or they like to do it at least. Mm. But no one's come up with, okay, this is what should have happened that was politically possible at the time. Um, and uh, I think that should be a humbling experience for us. You know, they, well, what would you have done? Uh, no one's really come up with a really good answer in terms of what could you do that that could have passed muster uh, with white Americans north and south, as well as African Americans north and south during that time. So I, I think it's a it's a problem. Uh, it's clearly if it was so easy for them to solve. Uh, why do we still have these problems today? with a, a much bigger commitment towards black equality, at least in some corners, and with a much more powerful federal government. Um, we, we find those problems difficult to solve. How could Grant find them easier to solve? We frequently pair Frederick Douglass with Abraham Lincoln in various meetings, and especially of uh, Douglass's compliments uh, to President Lincoln right after he had given the second inaugural address, mm -hmm. the with malice toward none address. But Douglas and Grant had a strong association as well, a very strong one. How would you describe it? And why do you think it doesn't get more notice? I think it is a fairly strong uh, relationship. It's much more supportive. Uh, Douglas is much less critical of Grant than he would be of Lincoln at times. That, you know, that, that, that Lincoln-Douglas, uh, Frederick-Douglas relationship takes a little while to form because Douglas is critical uh, of Lincoln at various times. Um, um, so that's a, that's a relationship that takes some time to build. Douglas sees Grant as a, a, a really powerful advocate of black equality and is frankly much more forthright in support of Grant and various administration measures uh, looking uh, to promote black opportunity. Um, uh, and in fact, this goes down to the present day. There's certainly a controversy about a statue in Washington, D.C., dedicated in 1876 with President Grant present, where the dedication speech was given by Frederick Douglass. And it's called the Emancipation Monument. And it's of a, uh, an African-American rising from his knees towards a standing Abraham Lincoln. And a lot of people, including people at the time, including Douglas himself, said, well, okay, this picture by itself is not necessarily what I would have really liked. Um, but it's interesting that when Douglas says we ought to talk about other monuments that should be on this, this one monument itself is insufficient to tell a story. One of the monuments he talks about erecting is one of Ulysses S. Grant. At that, at that moment. That's 1876 when the retreat from reconstruction has begun, when it has become evident to Grant and other Republicans that support for reconstruction is dwindling in the North. 
uh, uh, that the, uh, the terrorists have won in the South, so to speak. So it's interesting that the first thing that Douglas talks about is not necessarily more statues of African-Americans asserting themselves, although he is, would, would have been open to that. But he talks about, you know, we should have a statue of Grant there as well. Um, and uh, it's interesting that Grant's role in that story, um, in all its complexity, in all its ambivalence, is, uh, has not been told in a, a meaningful way uh, that drifts all the way back to his days, you know, before the war. I mean, you talked about things that people don't know. Uh, when Grant was in Missouri, he knew members of the Blow family. It had been the Blow family that had at one point owned Dred Scott and was supported Scott's um, yeah. court cases in the Dred Scott decision. And when the 15th Amendment was ratified, Grant took the occasion to issue a proclamation and said that the 15th Amendment undid the Dred Scott decision. So there's a commitment there um, on Grant's part that we're, we don't see again in, in, the, in the 19th, rest of the 19th or the 20th century until uh, probably Lyndon Johnson. Were the Grant scandals just, did they just overwhelm the, the things that you just talked about? I mean, you know, everybody likes a juicy scandal in any, any reading of the 19th century, the, the, the journalism, for lack of a better word, you really have to come to grips to it and understand it and understand the motivation. And you have cities that have multiple papers, you know, now it's right. inconceivable for, but you had cities, you had broadsheets and those sorts of things, but it's just either it was the lost cause or the scandals and you just, you just couldn't focus on the good things that president grant did. Well, I mean, the, the scandals didn't help in grants rather human, but, um, uh, unfortunate reaction didn't help. There's a lot of petty scandals. There's nothing really big. Um, but uh, Grant saw a press that was dedicated to uncovering scandal and a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives that wanted to investigate scandal as partisan, uh, as motivated by partisan issues. There's also, you know, talk about corruption in the South. There's corruption in Northern cities, the Tweed Ring in New York City, for example. So revelations of corruption are very sensational at that time. Grant's reaction is say, you're attacking me. He becomes very defensive. That, that's unfortunate. Because, and that's what lots of presidents do. They sure. never say, well, you know, is the charge true? They just get defensive. I am not a crook. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, so, you know, Grant's struggling with that. But what's interesting about corruption in the 19th century is that it's episodic and then it goes away. Um, and, and it doesn't stigmatize most people. Uh, James Garfield, for example, was accused of taking railroad stock in the Credit Mobier scandal. He gets right. elected president. Uh, James G. Blaine, I mean, you know, has you know, famous letter from him ends with "Burn this letter," which usually guarantees the letter is not burned. Uh, and, and was involved in lots of uh, interesting, uh, petty, uh, corrupt. Uh, pocket lining activities. Um, and yet he ran for president in 1884 and nearly won. Um, so it was sort of like, oh, we've caught you, we got you doing something. But some of the people, even Grant's administration, who were accused of corruption, they're buried in Arlington today. 
Uh, the Secretary of War, William Beltmap, is buried in Section 1 right outside the Lee Custis Mansion. So it was more of a game of gotcha after a while in terms of these things. <laughs> I think more important was there was a significant economic depression that started in 1873, which Grant really couldn't deal with because at that time the federal government had limited ability to, to shape the national economy. And I think it, had that not been for that, that depression, uh, Grant would have been uh, you know, better able to deal with some of the challenges. But you can see Democrats in the 1870s saying, you're out of a job, but this administration wants to help black people in the South. Right. Why is that? Help, help comes at home first. If you vote for us, we'll clean this mess up and restore government to, in the hands of people who should be exercising government, namely white people. The lost cause, and uh, we don't have time to discuss in any sort of detail, but I always, I always likened the lost cause mentality in the, in the scholarship and the literature that came out of it, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, please, uh, to, to Imperial Germany, to Germany after World War I, where the Germans, the South after uh, the Civil War, in Imperial Germany and then the Weimar Republic, the, the, the Germans and the Southerners just simply couldn't believe that they lost. Like, how did we lose? The Germans had the best army in the, in the world, and of course they had some pretty awful leadership in the Kaiser, but, but they just simply couldn't believe it. So they had to invent scapegoats. And that the Confederate, the Southern people just simply, I mean, all you have to do is watch the first half hour of Gone with the Wind and you get the attitude of most Southerners one Southerner can lick 20 Yankees. They just simply couldn't fathom that they lost to the Northerners. And of all the quotes that, that I read that make me want to read more about the Civil War and the mentality is the quote from Jefferson Davis where he says, quote, next to the defeat of the Confederacy, the death of Abraham Lincoln was the darkest day the South has ever known. Two quick questions. One is, do you agree with that? And what does that say about, about the attitude of Southerners? And a question I meant to ask you before, what do you think, as a scholar of Ulysses S. Grant, what do you think was going through his mind when he read the telegram that told him, Lincoln has been assassinated and cannot live. Well, if Lincoln had not been assassinated, what would happen is one of the great what-if questions of American history. Um, we, we know that uh, Lincoln, as of April 1865, was interested in a limited degree of black suffrage uh, in the South, uh, but was still committed to the restoration of civil governments um, throughout the South, which was one of the real challenges of Reconstruction. How do you control a people while you're restoring their right of uh, self-government in a federalist um, uh, system? Um, I think that Lincoln would have found the challenges of Reconstruction rather daunting. Um, and that perhaps uh, his assassination, unfortunate as it was in many other ways, uh, 
rescued him from having to deal with these very difficult, intractable problems that he himself understood he didn't know what he was going to do. I mean, that's his last cabinet meeting on April 14th. He says, circumstances have changed. We've got to start from ground zero all over again and, 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 and try to build a, a policy. Um, uh, Grant did believe in Lincoln's uh, political savvy as well as statesmanlike uh, commitment. Um, he also had a funny feeling about Andrew Johnson, who he'd already met and, and realized that Johnson was perhaps not equal to the task um, uh, that he would inherit. Um, but it'll always be one of those great what ifs. And, and the problem is that when we try to explore that one if in any um, disciplined way, we kind of reveal our fantasy life or our mm. assumptions about what we think, well, Lincoln could solve every problem. Well, Lincoln couldn't solve every problem. Like, you know, I have to remind people that if next to reuniting the nation, Abraham Lincoln's most original policy that he advocated most persistently for several years was colonization. Gradual emancipation, compensated to masters, compensation of masters followed by voluntary colonization. That went virtually nowhere. That was his darling. That was the policy he inherited from his hero, Henry Clay. Um, I think Republicans become more assertive now that it's not a war to worry about. Democrats, uh, war Democrats who were willing to support a war for union are not willing to support any form of black equality. Um, I, I think Lincoln would not have tolerated the violence that white Southerners committed against black Southerners uh, in the early years after the war, but I'm not sure how harsh he would have been. Uh, to me, in fact, the issue is not that Lincoln died, however unfortunate that it is, but that Andrew Johnson became the president. Because Andrew Johnson, given his commitments, given his beliefs, given his racism, which, you know, people thought was deep even for the time. Right. Um, uh, they, you talk about presidential relationships with Frederick Douglass. The one that Frederick Douglass had with Andrew Johnson was horrific. Uh, and, and the confrontation between the two men in February 1866 right. is one of the most uncomfortable discussions you'll ever see uh, between uh, a white president and an African-American leader. Um, so as tragic as Lincoln's passing is, I think it's Andrew Johnson becoming president that ensures that what is to follow is going to be a disaster. Um, and, and had there been somebody else who'd been you know, maybe wonderfully mediocre or unexceptional, um, willing to listen to others. Uh, that presidential, uh, that president might have had a better time. But Andrew Johnson, I mean, you know, one of the ways in which Abraham Lincoln stands out as a great president is on one side there's James <laughs> Buchanan, and the other side there's Andrew Johnson, um, and um, you know. Uh, two men who will continue to uh, inhabit the bottom five of American presidents uh, for quite some time. And, um, you know, it, whereas I think Grant has now come up to about a mid-level, which I think is an acceptable 
uh, you know, a presidency that had some accomplishments and some failures uh, in a fairly difficult time. That that's probably better than how Grant used to be evaluated. I think that's fair. But but Lincoln gets to profit from the people around him in a way that perhaps no other American president quite had that excellent opportunity. <laughs> that's a terrific point. I hadn't. I mean, obviously, you think about them, uh, James Buchanan and. Andrew Johnson being terrible presidents, but right. I mean, you talk about a rose between two thorns. Uh, last question I want to ask before we get to the five questions is you can't have a podcast with a, a grant historian. And we are talking to professor Brooks Simpson, a grant biographer and uh, one of the leading, if not the leading grant scholars in the country and the world without at least one quick question about grants memoirs. I read <laughs> Uh, Mr. Flood's book, I think it's called Grant's Final Victory, mm-hmm. about Grant. It's absolutely, an, an, I loved that book. Not Bothly the memoirs, which I read a long time ago, but Mr. Flood's book about Grant racing against his own death to mm-hmm. finish these memoirs. It's, it's superb. But you as a scholar, when you read the memoirs or you read about the memoirs of U.S. Grant, the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, as a writer and, and a historian, what is your estimation of them? And I can tell you a very quick story and I'll make it quick. Uh, George Will gave mm-hmm. a speech uh, down in Bloomington where Indiana University is. And I oh. went down there to listen to it. And um, he said he would sign books. So everyone brought these books and um, they brought books that Will had written. And I was enough of a snot to bring my copy of the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant. And I handed it to him. I said, uh, Dr. Will, would you mind signing this for me? And he looked at me like, what the hell are these? Like, this book, this binding is so old, it can't be one of mine. And he flipped it over and he looked at it and he saw uh, the name of the book and who the author was. And uh, uh, George Will looked right at me and goes, I wish I had written a book as good as this. Mm-hmm. And he signed it. It's also actually currently signed. I have the copy of it. It's signed by both George Will and Mitch Daniels, who are good mm-hmm. friends. And so uh, as a scholar, as a grant admirer, as someone who studies the era and writes and has been published, the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, worth the hype? Yes, worth the hype. Um at, at the same time, I, I, the the mastery of of this book, the achievement of this book, which was written under such dire and desperate circumstances, and and a, a truly courageous act of will, is that Grant leads you to believe that his version of events is the version of events. There, there are personal scores he settles in there. There's the occasional comment or sarcastic remark. But by and large, those people who have questions, and, and some of them have very serious and, and questions with ac- the accuracy of some of Grant's statements. Um, the problem is that Grant's prose is so persuasive um, that, that most readers are convinced that this is what the story of the war was. Uh, where it's, it's really a memoir that has, you know, omissions. Doesn't talk about his drinking, for example, 
uh, leaves out important people in his life um, and, and, you know, deals with, with, with certain things in a way that, um, um, you know, he, he, Grant's view becomes the view. He, he's not even, I think, you know, altogether honest about his relationship with Lincoln and how that, that built up over time. Um, but the mastery of the prose is such that it becomes the voice of, of the union cause and, and people accept it um, as being real, uh, as being accurate, uh, when in fact there are plenty of things you could debate about it. So I think as an act of literature, it's actually much more powerful to me than as an act of autobiography. Does it mention, forgive me, does it mention, uh, if I don't remember the exact uh, number, forgive me, but is it, order, is it General Order 11 where he expels the... No, it doesn't mention that at all, for example. He expels it doesn't the... doesn't mention the, the Go ahead. expulsion of the Jews from, right. uh, from his military district at the end of 1862. Doesn't mention that at all. Doesn't mention a lot of things. And I don't think the Grant documentary did either that would just came No, out. it didn't. And that was one of the... You see that, but see, I could argue that's okay. You got to decide which story you're going to tell, or or what's the purpose of your documentary. And again, Grant at least had a story to tell, and he follows that narrative line, uh, you know, of how his story is the nation's story, and 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 his his part in it. Um, but uh, there are issues. I, I said this a long time ago, and I now understand it's on various quoted sites. I said it's a bad business to fall in love with dead people. And, and what I mean by that is a biographer's idea is to make you understand somebody, warts and all, uh, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, a lot of Civil War uh, writing about generals tends to be of the cheerleader uh, sort of, I like generals so-and-so, and I don't like generals so-and-so, and uh, yeah, Patton, uh, Patton and Montgomery in World War II. You can't like them right. both. So, it, you know, you, it, it, as you said, you know, does Grant's uh, rise and reputation coincide with Lee's? Do you have to denigrate Lee to exalt Grant or the other way around? Or do you have to denigrate Grant in order to exalt uh, George Thomas or George B. McClellan or William S. Rosecrans? Rosecrans, yeah. Um, for example, do you have to? Uh, you know, make fun of a, a, a Grant in order to, to get your little heroes. There's a lot of cheerleading um, going on in, in some uh, Civil War military history that concentrates on generals. But, you know, Grant's memoirs become this book that everyone runs into sooner or later. They have to deal with it. Uh, and um, as a piece of literature, it, it's magnificent. Um, but I think part of the art of narrative and the art of memory is not only what you remember, what you forget, and how you tell what you do remember. And so there are things missing from that book, which make it somewhat less than a, a true confessional autobiography or a, a deep insights. Grant's very, Grant lets you in when he wants to let you in. He keeps you out when he wants to keep you out. Ironically, perhaps, I discovered this quote when I was doing the research for my own presentation. The Richmond Dispatch newspaper. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is irony. Eulogized Ulysses S. Grant best upon his death when they wrote, quote, 
He was so pervaded by greatness that he seemed not to be conscious that he was great. Yeah, and I think that's true, but I also think a way of looking at it is um, is a story from the Grant presidency. When the grounds around the White House were much more open than they are now, and there's a fellow comes to Washington, and um, he's not quite sure what to make of the national capital or its chief inhabitant. And he's walking around the White House, and he comes upon somebody, and they begin to chat. And finally, the visitor says, you know, uh, between you and me, I think they make too much of Grant. I think he's probably overrated. And the other fellow shakes his head yes and agrees. Okay, then two break up. Fellow goes back to his hotel. Then he hears there's a White House reception, which was very common in the 19th century. You'd open the doors of the White House once a week, and people would come in and shake hands. That's how Grant and Lincoln actually met for the first time in 1864. And so he decides, what the heck, I'm in Washington. I'm going to go to the White House, and I'll shake hands with the president. And he walk, he's in line, and he walks up, and he looks up. That's the guy he was talking to in the afternoon. And, and Grant recognizes him and smiles and says, you know, glad to meet you here. And the guy, you know, was very imp impressed by Grant's rather low-key approach to his own reputation. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean Grant wasn't a proud man. He was. Um, but he, he understood the ups and downs better than more, most people could. He, he could. he could laugh at himself uh, um, when necessary. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. And I believe it's at Historic Union Station where Stanton met Ulysses S. Grant to give him the commission to command the armies of the West in 1863. Yes, but that, in that meeting, he actually went up and said, I recognize you from your pictures, and he shook the hand of Grant's Surgeon General. <laughs> poor, poor Uncle Sam Grant. The law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Uh, We're going to do the five questions with... Grant, Ulysses S. Grant Scholar, Professor Brooks Simpson. Actually, it's interesting because the Union Station in Indianapolis, which quite frankly is just a few blocks from where I'm doing this podcast, also besides Ulysses S. Grant, welcomed Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a plaque there for him. We end the podcast with the same five questions to everyone and we'll make them quick. Are you ready? Ready. What was your first job? I worked in a bookstore in Charlottesville, Virginia. What was your first concert? I think the Little River Band in Charlottesville in the 1970s. That's a new one. We've not yet had the Little River Band. We've had some good ones, not that one. And this number three and four and five are going to be tough for you based on your scholarship and all the people you know, but please give it your best shot. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Um, 
gee, there are so many things that I could say at that point, as I'm sure you've gotten that response to that question before. Um, but I'll tell you a book that uh, is now fallen in the past, but I think is a, a very provocative book is Richard Hofstadter, The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It, which was originally published in 1948. Famous presidential scholar, as I recall, is that mm -hmm. correct? Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it, sorry, this is a terrible question for you, but everybody gets it. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Bob Nystrom's overtime goal in the 1980s Stanley Cup Finals. <laughs> you know, most people don't choose sports stuff, so sometimes I ask a separate sports question. Um, actually, when, when the question was posed to me by uh, Chris Spangle, who helps with the podcast, I said the surrender at Appomattox, that to see Grant and Lee together for that purpose must have just been awe-inspiring. It, it certainly would have been. The last question, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record, whom would you choose? Probably Barack Obama. He's been very popular. Actually, so is George W. Bush. They both have been. <laughs> and, and, and um, well, if I had George W. Bush there, I'd make sure there were no pretzels. Um, but, uh, but he's a very affable person as well. I, I, and it's, but I, I would want to pick Obama's brain on things that people might not normally talk to him about, because I, I do think, um, uh, He's an interesting person, uh, uh, but I, I also remember that, you know, I understand the high esteem in which people hold him, um, but I also knew that he was a guy who made his way up through Illinois politics, and so I always thought he was more pragmatic uh, than some people uh, gave him uh, credit for. And presidents in general have been, have been very popular, uh, George W. Bush, and I think Barack Obama, too, at same are both significant and dedicated history buffs mm -hmm. and so it always be it always be interesting to me to talk to someone who had held the highest office like you know president obama who, who do you read about like who do you read about and go man i can't believe what an incredible leader what an amazing accomplishment it would be i'm always fascinated by who people who have accomplished great things done great things or or led in particular uh, perilous times who they look to for inspiration and who leaves them awestruck. And, and it's interesting, one person is not mentioned quite as often as Bill Clinton, who really was obsessed with how he would fit in with his predecessors and uh, whose own biography, uh, autobiography actually mentions uh, the rehabilitation of Grant's reputation as suggesting that he too one day will be looked at more favorably than he was at the time of his writing. Brooke Simpson is a scholar, and he clearly is a man who has been very generous with his time. This has been uh, an amazing conversation. I literally have three dozen questions I didn't ask, but we're going to let him go. He's been kind with his time. Thank you so very much, Professor Simpson. We are very, very honored to get a chance to speak to you. And personally, let me say that uh, I very much enjoy your work on Grant and 
for you to spend some time with us today talking about this man and his accomplishments is a real treat. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.